This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, very happy to bring Holding Court back into the fold this summer after a little summer hiatus. And uh, very happy to have someone who's got a distinguished career uh, in the world of litigation and politics and service to the community, especially here in the New York City area. Alvin Bragg also has quite a history uh, in the tennis world, as do his kids. So we'll touch on all those topics. But Alvin uh, just uh, announcing recently that he's going to be running for the district attorney in New York, having spent the last couple of years at the New York Law School uh, teaching there after what, Alvin? Was it about 15, 20 years you working uh, in the DA's office and various? other uh, areas of, of, of law and legal work after your storied uh, career in, in school going to Trinity where we both went um, as kids here in the New York City area and then going on to Harvard and Harvard Law School as well. So anyway, welcome and uh, we've been trying to touch base for a while. It's great to have you on board here, Al- Alvin. So so excited and I can, I can remember being a, a little kid. I was, I, was, I was years behind you and, and- and uh, coming up, and uh, do your name from a, a very, a very young, young age. Trinity, Trinity, a Trinity legend you are. So <laughs> it is great to, yeah. I obviously, done a whole lot of other impactful things in your life, but that that was uh, that was how I I came to know you first, many, many, many years ago. Yeah, well, Trinity served the McEnroe family well, and obviously served you well, Alvin. You went, you were a twelve-year Trinity because I just went there for high school. From uh, and the Trinity, by the way, is a is a private school in New York City, one of the top, really one of the top high schools in the country. That you went there from K through twelve, correct? I did, I did. I went there. I went there throughout, and uh, you'll appreciate this place. Many a uh, match on the the, the sort of uh, those those outdoor courts that mm-hmm. have the, the the great water drainage, <laughs> right? The matted court that we would roll out on top of the, uh, the the basketball courts, which ended up being my my primary sport in high school. I wasn't I wasn't good enough. We can talk about it. My tennis career kind of kind of peaked before I hit double digits. <laughs> Funny because it, it used to be like a big deal playing in the matches at Trinity. Was, as Alvin has pointed out, it's a great facility. It's a pool that is used uh, frequently by the swim teams at, at Trinity, but also there are two tennis courts sort of on top, on, on top of a roof. And it was a very weird um, uh, surface, almost like a kind of like an open tile, right? Alvin, as you said, the water would drain exactly. through a very slippery surface overall. And when we used to play our matches, as you're noting, Alvin, in high school, they used to roll down. It was, it was used to be called an old Supreme court. And they used to use that a lot of times, Alvin, even in, in professional tournaments, it's like a, like a rubberized surface. We used to roll down over the basketball court. So it would always be a treat to be able to play on the basketball court for the one match while the rest of the team was playing up on the roof. So how, how often did you get to play on that court? Not, you know, not often. I was, I was often up on the roof and having played on it for years and not, not being the, 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 the fastest guy. I was, I was one of the folks who tried to paint the lines as my dad used to say. <laughs> uh, so uh, it being a little bit slippery would help me uh, neutralize the speed of some of my opponents. I, uh, I, uh, so that court was okay for me. But yeah, I didn't. I, I wasn't a marquee enough player to get down to the, uh, to, the, to the to the basketball court turned tennis court. That's where they they let the you know 
the, the, the top matches to play. <laughs> I didn't make it to that court that often. Well, you uh, you certainly used tennis and all that it gave you uh, in in so many ways in your career, which is just amazing. Obviously, having known that uh, we were going to do this podcast, I did a little homework on on your career and what you've been doing since uh, you left Harvard uh, Law School after going there undergrad as well, and just just your career serving the public and and dealing with uh, so many important issues, which have come to the forefront even more in the last six to to twelve months with the pandemic and with the uprising, et cetera. But just educate my listeners a little bit, Alvin, about sort of overall what's inspired you to do what you've done in your career. Definitely. I appreciate the opportunity. So, so I'm a, I'm a a Manhattan guy and I, and I sort of uh, had the two existences growing up. I had the, 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 the great benefit of going to Trinity and I had the great benefit of living in Harlem and I would take the M10 bus down from central Harlem to 91st street every day. But I had a, a bunch of experiences, uh, you know, early on with, with you know, a few kind of horrific gunpoint uh, stops at police. Mm. I mean, this is, you know, taking folks back to the, you know, the 1980s, the height of the crack cocaine epidemic and, uh, and policing, uh, in, in particularly in Harlem. But also the Upper West Side was a very different place then, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those early experiences, which were really, um, you know, very scary. Uh, and, you know, thinking back on them, uh, you know, still very memorable uh, being stopped and is really sort of channeling that, that, that energy and going, going to, uh, off to Harvard for law school and college and coming back and just deciding I wanted to do something that would both kind of promote justice, you know, sort of, you know, uh, address some of those stops, which I mean, looking back with my law school degree, I now know were, you know, fully unconstitutional, several of them, mm-hmm. um, but also fairness and balancing public safety and fairness. And so that's, that's what I've done the last 20 years. I, I started off as a, a civil rights lawyer and, and criminal defense lawyer became a, a, a federal prosecutor working on on public corruption and other issues, and then was at the the state attorney general's office as the chief deputy there, overseeing uh, a staff of twelve hundred, and in particular also appointed to a special prosecutor role to investigate um, police conduct that re- results in uh, uh, deaths of, of unarmed persons. So really trying to marry justice and, and, and safety, and as you say. These issues are really at the fore these days with uh, uh, George Floyd and, and other uh, other uh, killings we've seen uh, this summer. Yeah, and and must have been quite something uh, taking that bus from Harlem and and going down to to Trinity every day. Uh, I did it for a year coming actually from Queens. I used to take the uh, LIRR from uh, Queens uh, and then take the subway up from from um, Penn Station up to uh, Trinity as well. But I was a white kid coming from the white suburbs, going into a, a basically a mostly white school, which Trinity still is to this day. So you as an African-American kid coming from Harlem, taking the bus and coming into what had to be a different world than what you were used to as far as where you lived, correct? Definitely. I mean, completely, completely different world. And, you know, life lessons on both, on both sides, you know, learning, um, you know, the, the sort of navigate uh, Trinity uh, and, and really getting you know great education there. Um, but then also the you know the lessons from from my neighbors uh, in Harlem. It, it, it was it was in some ways I you know I talk about the campaign sort of having a two tier justice system. One that is is you know we've seen in Manhattan with Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein. You know, kind of uber elite folks evading mm-hmm. accountability, and then on the other end having 
uh, uh, mass incarceration. And really, really, just to give your listeners a sense, you know, you know it's really punitive. Uh, you know, we've had a, a homeless man arrested for, you know, buying toothpaste and food with counterfeit money, and the DA recommended five to ten years in jail. You know, very punitive policy, side by side with people who I think, like Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know, who I think everyone would agree, very, very significant misconduct mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and not held accountable. accountable. So, I, yeah, I learned that duality uh, very early on. And I think you, you may appreciate it. I'm actually just focused on it as, as I was thinking about talking to you. Mm-hmm. Early on, you know, tennis, tennis was a, a, a big connector for me because mm-hmm. my dad played uh, kind of. Um, he would say similarly professionally. I'm not so sure exactly what that meant, but the minute he loved the sport. A lot of a lot of people, a lot of people, Av, Alvin can play semi-professionally in tennis. Okay, a lot of pretty much anybody could. <laughs> yeah, I'm not exactly sure what it means, and if we've got to cut a check, but he loved the sport mm-hmm. and introduced me to it early, and I, I started to play uh, in Harlem in the in the in the Armory on right. 145th Street and uh, courts right behind Esplanade Garden, which, uh, and and. And so, you know, by the time I got to Trinity, I've been playing, um, or I guess probably not. I, I sort of played in both places, and that was that was a, something that was a connective tissue, uh, was something that that I was able to sort of learn uptown, and then and then take there and and, and play and sort of help br- bridge some divides. As, as oftentimes, I think sports just could be a connector. Lots of sports. But for me, tennis was the first first connector sport. What was the vibe, Alvin, from your friends and people you live with doing playing tennis? Because obviously, tennis is seen, you know, in many in many parts of the world, and especially in this country, sort of a white bread sport and uh, you know an elitist sport, which is something we're still battling to this day, it, despite the fact that we've got two of the greatest arguably the greatest of all time African-American players and it's females and Serena and Venus and countless other really, really good ones as well. Um, but so what, but what was it like as a young kid in Harlem? How was that received by, for, for you as a young kid in your community? So it was, I mean, I played in sort of the precursor to sort of what Serena and Venus, um, we're in that kind of program. I understand they were in. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, all, uh, you know, African-American or 95% African-American, uh, outreach program, you know, so it was very kind of steeped in, um, you know, kind of gender equity, race equity, um, uh, you know, very, you know, it was almost like a second school. Um, right. and so with the folks I played with, um, there was, uh, a real, um, sense of, you know, this isn't just sort of a sort of a sport to play, but you know, uh, kind of you know, working on discipline, working mm-hmm. you know, the, the adults who are really you know using tennis as a as a as a you know as a as a vehicle for 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 enrichment. Um, but certainly, I you know, there was there were some some other folks who um, you know who would who would tease and 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 say you know hey you know um, you know you, you should be playing basketball football and. And uh, and I did transition to those sports as I got as I got older, but not not because of any sort of perception of of softness or any you know kind of odd norms, but mostly just because I, I you know I I, I I wasn't so good you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Uh-huh. I told my wife I was going to mention this. She was teasing me. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know I was I was I went and played the NYJTL eight and under, and I was the singles and doubles champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought I was great. You know, out there played out at the um, you know, Arthur Ashe, right. uh, Flushing uh, Meadows, yeah, you know, right. Of course. Uh, and then I went back the next year for the 10 and under and I was fine. 
and I lost like six love, six love. So, (laughs) you know, with that transition, I'm sure you know it well, was go from, you know, playing pretty recreationally, Mm -hmm. playing all the time. And the program I was in, certainly for me, was much more of an enrichment program and not sort of, hey, you're going to be the best tennis player ever. Right. Uh, and so, and so I, 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 I turned to some other sports around that time. And said, ah, you know, I don't think I'm going to be the next Arthur Ashe here, but I kind of got, got some really good um, life lessons and made, made a bunch of friends. And, but definitely heard, you know, you know kind of the, the hey, that, that's, a, that's a soft sport um, sort of thing. But, you know, it's kind of a great sport. Because if you, you know, the, the, the course I played on were public, uh, right up, right, right near the, the apartment building I grew up in. And you need a racket, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, right. we, I've got all these old wooden rackets that, you know, the program sort of, you know, would give to us. Uh, and, and, and happen to have these courts. And so you didn't need, you know, not like a football where you need a lot of equipment or something like that. Right. The interesting thing about tennis, and you, it, 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 I've heard this so many times, and it's one of the challenges we have in tennis and in, in, in your story really um, tells a little bit of that story, which is that we in the tennis world, we lose kids like you who are interested in tennis, play competitively at a young age, and then as, as, as happened to you, as you get a little bit older, you realize, well, you know, maybe I'm not that good at tennis. And so we actually lose a, this very similar stories, Alvin, to what you just told me, to kids that don't really have a place to go because that, that really shouldn't happen. You know, you should be able to find that place where it's at your level, where you don't have to say, hey, I need to be a big time national player. I mean, I see it now in our academy that we run at Randall's Island, uh, along with my brother. And we have kids from Harlem and kids from Queens and, you know, a great scholarship program that we help kids that normally wouldn't get get the opportunity. A a, a few of them progress, Alvin, to where they're going to be like big time national players. A lot of them you know, play at a good competitive level in, 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 in tournaments or maybe in their schools. But uh, it's a challenge to keep those kids involved at a level that's not the highest level. And I think that's one of the, the things that you ran into as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll have a proud father moment. My, 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 uh, my son, who's, who's now 10, a couple of years ago, he was, he was out on Randall's uh, uh, with y'all and, and got, uh, you know, a camper of the week. And I, I think... Mm. Uh, not not because of he, he was necessarily the best, most talented, but uh, you know he tends to sort of follow the rules and he's he's a good player. But we'll see. I think he's sort of at the same. He really loves the sport um, and is good, but is not you know exceptional. Um, and so I'm hoping he sticks with it in a way that I didn't. I mean, the program I was in was was as I said. Uh, I think there there were people who might have gone on to, to more storied tennis careers and not stopped it nine or 10, like I did, but it was a lot of discipline, you know, kind of, uh, you know, use it, use it, use a bad word, you know, just get your mouth blocked out with, (laughs) right. 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 Approaching things, uh, you know, you know, targeting back, you know, you, you, you self edited a moment ago. We would, we would have, we would have lost some, uh, some, 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 some court time, you know, if we we said a, we said a word that uh, was untoward. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, I think that was helpful having that sort of discipline, um, but 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 it may have been also that we, we would have been great to 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 have uh, um, for me. I, w- I wish I would have stayed with it past that time. I still play recreationally, but well, um, as as you said, it taught you I think um, some discipline and and thank goodness that programs like that, the Harlem Junior Tennis League, the NYJTL, exists because let's be honest, uh, even if you're playing tennis. Uh, 
nonstop. The chance of you making a living doing it are slim, um, no matter what your background is, because it's just that difficult. So I think I think you've done okay, Alvin, when you look at uh, what you've done, serving as a chief deputy attorney general in New York, now running for uh, to be the DA. And what what prompted you? Obviously, you've, your career is 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 long, and it looks like you've. This has kind of been your path and your mind for ever since you were a kid going to school and then to law school starting out and then going back and teaching for a couple of years. What made you decide to do that? Was that just sort of a precursor to what was what is coming now, which is running to be the DA, the, the man himself? Yeah, so, so probably the reverse in that I just I love the work. I, I love I'm enjoying teaching now, but really, I, you know, I'm a government uh, lawyer. That's that's what I've done for for 15 plus years in various capacities, and enjoyed being in senior leadership at the attorney general's office. And when that when the when the term ended, and I was teaching, I sort of had a little bandwidth and said, "Look, you know, you know, kind of, you know, why not now? Why not be?" Mm-hmm. Uh, I had had sort of ideas and frustrations about like, sort of, sort of two tiered system of justice, and feeling like I'd had jobs where had an opportunity to have an impact, whether it was, you know, prosecuting a, a law enforcement official for misconduct or, you know, whether it was um, bringing a case to, you know, uh, break up a, a violent, um, you know, criminal organization, uh, feeling that, that a lot of times people de-link safety and, and justice and you have different people advancing, you know, a justice argument versus a fairness argument and really kind of pair those and say, look, for 15 years I've been, at this intersection, sometimes a, you know, a unicorn, uh, but I feel like the experience has prepared me both from doing the cases and then also, you know, learning, learning to manage and pairing that with the life experience. So it was more sort of being, being in a moment where I sort of had a pause because I was teaching and able to reflect and say, look, this, this, this sounds like a very good next step. And, and it was a big leap of, leap of faith to sort of say I'm going to run. I'm used to being the number two or number three person. Mm-hmm. And it is when you're running, you're sort of out there and you're talking about yourself, uh, personal and professional experience, different way. And, and so it did, did, did require uh, active thought and consultation with family. But I'm so happy I did. I'm so happy I did this would be a part of the conversation. Obviously, hoping that I pre- pre- prevail and can really bring the kind of fundamental reform that, that I think we need. You know, you mentioned earlier, Alvin, that you're obviously involved in some, some, some big high-profile cases like the Harvey Weinstein and Epstein, et cetera. But really, I mean, you, you've been doing so much more for so many years, particularly in the area of, of law enforcement. And you mentioned, you know, some of the issues that have come up with uh, – uh, you know, a, a person who steals something, you know, for 20 bucks and they get five years. I mean, your experience, and I'm, I'm obviously an, a novice at, at the details of this, so I'm, I'm counting on you to help me understand it. And obviously, it's, it, it's the, the race side of it is a big part of it. But is it, is it more than that? Like, how is this so embedded in the justice system that something like that can continue to happen and has happened for so long? I, you know, I think it was the old expression, you know, if you, you, you know, if you're, uh, you know, whatever, you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. It's, you know, we've, we've just decided that incarceration is you know, kind of the reflexive result for so many things. So instead of, 
you know, looking at a homeless person, and my dad used to run homeless shelters, so that's an example that really resonates for me, um, and saying, hey, he's, he's trespassing, and that's, you know, someone else's property, and that's, you know, something that we should do something about. Our reflexive uh, answer has not been, let's look at housing and, 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 and supportive responses, but incarceration. Mm. And I think the data, and maybe now looking in hindsight, it's intuitively forceful, but certainly the data show, you know, it just doesn't make us safer, right? You send someone to Rikers Island, which is our local jail, mm-hmm. for an offense like that, and the you know, person is released in, you know, for trespass or 60 days or something like that, and they go back to the same place and nothing has been solved. And we spend a lot of government money. It's come at a great personal cost uh, to, to not just the person, but the person's loved, loved one. And we haven't solved anything. So I think, you know, having worked on sort of complex cases where, you know, dismantling, you know, multi-million dollar criminal operations. That's where I think our, our criminal system should focus. Mm. And then on things like, you know, social distancing enforcement, uh, you know, uh, homelessness, mental health, that, you know, we've got sort of, you know, community-led solutions, people who are trained, uh, like someone like my dad, who, 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 who could address the homelessness. And so really just reorienting and thinking about what we're using police for and is it affirming and productive? Like, does it get the result? That we want. I think a lot of times the discussion has been, well, we got to do something. We, you know, have the whole homeless folks get a response. And I said, yeah, we do have to do something, mm. but the answer doesn't have to be incarceration. And I think we've now seen kind of the fruits with the, you know, last 30 years. We are at a uh, historically high incarceration rate for our country and just really for sport for the world, uh, really out of line historically and, and with other countries currently. So, uh, that, that all of that has inspired me to run to really help to change that, to address those issues, um, and then also to you know look at you know side by side you know stuff like sort of gun violence, things that really are um, you know you talk about race and the impact of incarceration affecting Black people uh, in a disparate way. You know, so does the gun violence, right? So on the, on the sort of you know traditional public safety side of the ledger, that issue is also affecting uh, African American communities more so. So focusing on community-led solutions, ways to, uh, we did this at the Attorney General's office, develop a data portal to look at where the unlawful guns coming from. They're not being manufactured in the city. We can trace them back, mm-hmm. um, and we can develop law enforcement strategies to stop them from never getting here. So looking at those kind of holistic solutions, that's what I'm focused on. Well, Alvin Bragg joining me here and uh, educating me, and I hope all of you listening as well, because uh, his his uh, history and what he's done has been phenomenal, and I'm sure there's more ahead. And the, and the last thing I want to ask you about, Alvin, is uh, you know one of the things that's worrying me during this whole pandemic, uh, in 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 addition to just the virus itself, obviously, right, is just the impact it's having on our country, and it's it, and it, it's seeming that it's making the divide between the haves and the have-nots even more extreme. And obviously in this country, we've sort of been heading in that direction. In in my humble view, which I don't, again, understand the ins and outs of it, certainly the way someone like you does, but you know, just so disproportionately, and obviously race is a part of that, but not the entire story there. Uh, does it worry you when you see, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, corporations somehow making money off of this pandemic with tax benefits and, you know, the average person not able to, to, to get the help that they need. Is that, is that, a, you know, can we stop this? What it's seemingly almost inevitable 
with the way the current government is set up, is this going to continue or is there, please tell me, I guess, Alva, is what I'm saying, that there's some light at the end of this tunnel that we'll be okay. So, I, you know, that's the whole, I, I agree with this profoundly disturbing. You look at something like the, the PPP, the PPE, the, 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 the federal uh, loan program, mm-hmm. and you look at, um, you know, companies that received it um, and, 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 and those who did not, and it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. You know, we on the one hand have you know, folks who are continuing to, to prosper. On the other hand, you know, lots of people, and you're right, it cuts, it's disproportionately affecting, uh, um, I can folks, but it cuts across all racial lines. You know, you know, there, there are people of all backgrounds, uh, sitting around thinking about how am I going to pay rent and I don't have income. And we're talking about people who, you know, six months ago, you know, had, you know, had jobs, but were month to month, and now they're they're trying to figure out, um, you know, what the next month looks like. It, it is quite dire. Um, you know, I think it's a time to continue to sort of invest in our in our neighborhoods and our in our in our in our people with you know, kind of, whether it's unemployment insurance, whether it's you know broader supports uh, to really double down on some of that because uh, you know if not, we we really are looking at you know not just sort of the two tiers in the criminal justice system, but in in all of, of our of our society, which affects all of our institutions, from our you know our representative democracy, um, certainly obviously the finance sector, and so I I, I hope that this right into the tumble. I think it it requires you know active um, engagement. You know everything from folks who are you know protesting in the streets and vocalizing efforts to our local legislatures, where we've seen some change, and now they're in Albany right now talking about packages that would help us to our federal government. Um, and Congress, and, and and so it's really a all of the above approach from 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 protesting to voting to doing the Senate census. Um, so I'm obviously a big believer in the effect of government, having spent most of my career there, but also a believer in the people pushing government. Mm. So I think we need to continue to have that 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 groundswell, um, which is having a positive effect uh, uh, in, 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 in on our on, on our leadership, particularly I know in Albany with their back in. And, and thinking about and have already passed some things that I think are going to be helpful. Well, it's certainly nice to hear someone like you, Alvin, say that um, you believe in government, you know, because unfortunately we hear way too much of this, you know, noise from both sides that, you know, government's not the answer. And I think this has showed us that government needs to be a big part of the answer in, in whatever world you're in, whatever you're doing. And, uh, uh, I wish you all the best in in uh, going for the DA. You uh, certainly have earned the the right to to be there, and uh, I need to get you out back out on those courts, Alvin. I need to see your son out there too, because it sounds like you got you, you had a big game right there. We got to refine that game. I, I would love that. I would. I, 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 this is this conversation has inspired me. I'm going to have to go. <laughs> Go find my old wooden racket, you know, yep. and see if I can make maybe time for an upgrade for the wood one, huh? You could start. You could start with the wood. Go out to that wall, and uh, you know, practice against that wall. And uh, I'll be ready for it, Randall's Island, anytime, my friend. Sounds good. I, I look forward to. It. I look forward. You got to go easy on. Uh, no problem. And I appreciate you doing this. And uh, good luck. And thanks for all you're doing to help this uh, help this Thank city you. and help Thank this country. And thanks for all you're doing. I know you're doing a lot of youth enrichment. Um, and, and podcasts and raising issues. So thank you for everything you're doing, and thank you for, for having me on. I appreciate it. You got it. Alvin Brack, ladies and gentlemen, on Holding Court. Holding 
Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Mudhouse Media.